You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi everybody and welcome back to Who Did What Now? The History Podcast with me, your deviant host, Katie Charlewood, tea addict and reader of books. Hi, if you're new, this is the History Podcast that is not your history class. If you want dry information regarding dates and stuff, go somewhere else. If, however, if you like your history to be taught with a little bit of personality, and I want to say fun, even though most of history is kind of depressing. So when there are funny moments and things that we can talk about a little lighter and be a bit more jovial regarding, then I'm going to do it. Because there's only so much trouble and strife one person can take. So it is Women's History Month. I decided to bite the bullet and do something I've wanted to do a long time, which is cover the six wives of Henry VIII. Uh, I I generally refer to them as the six Tudor queens. Uh, I have had people go like, no, they're queen consorts. I say people. It's usually men who correct me on stuff like that. And I'm like, shut your mouth. Nobody cares about your opinion. And so I am churning out an episode every couple of days for the rest of the month to get all six wives covered. And I said this in the last episode about Catherine of Aragon, was that whenever there are podcasts regarding the six Tudor queens, Catherine of Aragon gets her own episode, Anne Boleyn gets her own episode, and then the rest of them just kind of get shoved in together. And I don't like that. There is enough information there to fill out a podcast. It just might not be your most prevalent episode. You know, if one person listens to their stories, then I've done something right. And that's what matters. Because I want each of them to have their story told in their own right. Because so often they're just side notes in Henry's stories. And you know what I can say to that? Fuck that for a game of soldiers. Also, yes, we are now on to the second queen. We're going to do them in chronological order because that's the only fair way I can think of doing it. I know what you're thinking. Quit your jibber jabber woman and fact me. Well, I will. But first of all, we have to get our sources out there, don't we? I have to talk about this because this has to be one of my favourite books regarding Anne Boleyn that I've ever read. It's called The Creation of Anne Boleyn by Susan Bordeaux. And it takes care to consider the bias on both sides of the board and take into consideration 
factual information from history along with first-hand accounts which obviously have inherent bias in them and prejudice and things like that and it is absolutely fantastic. I am I cannot recommend this book enough. Another another one I read which which is Hayley Nolan's um, Anne Boleyn 500 Years of Lies. The Rise and Fall of Anne Boleyn Family Politics of the Court of Henry VIII by Retha Warnick. The AnneBoleynFiles.com that has to be one of my favourites actually. Six Wives by Dr. David Starkey. The Life and Death of Anne Boleyn by Eric Ives. Before we start and get into the history of Anne Boleyn, there's a few things that I feel that we should resolve to begin with. First of all, Anne Boleyn was not a witch. She did not have six fingers and she did not introduce the blowjob to England. And now we may start our show. So, Anne Boleyn, where did it start? Well, it started with her birth. And there's some sort of uh, confusion, because uh, again, ladies from the past, sometimes we don't have accurate information regarding them, regardless of how well-known they are. <sighs> and also because, you know, their husbands who have them executed try to remove all knowledge of them from existence. But anyway, Anne Boleyn was born in somewhere between 1501 and 1507, but it's more likely to be closer to 1501. Her sister Mary is definitely older and George was born around 1504. Yeah, depending on how old Anne was, don't know whether he was older or younger. Anne is the daughter of Lady Elizabeth Howard and Thomas Boleyn, the Earl of Wiltshire and the Earl of Ormond. And she is born in Norfolk at the Boleyn home in Blickling. But they do end up growing up in the uh, Hever Castle. Hever Castle? One of those in Kent. Thomas Boleyn is doing pretty well because Henry VII of England, her technically future father-in-law, quite likes Thomas. He thinks he's pretty cool. He's a favourite. He, he's often sending him in diplomatic missions abroad because Thomas is good with languages and he's a pretty good diplomat. So by the time Anne's born, her family are pretty well respected in the whole English aristocracy thing. So Anne's education is very, very typical for, like, a girl of her class. She studied maths, or, you know, arithmetic, genealogy, grammar, history, spelling, writing, and reading. And, you know, so that's the academic stuff. But she also learned stuff like dancing, embroidery, good manners, Household management, singing, music, and needlework, like a lady of the house is supposed to. And, here we go, uh, she learns to play games like chess and cards. And then she also gets taught outdoor pursuits like archery, falconry, horseback riding, and hunting. Anne was a natural charmer. So in 1513, she's travelling with her father in the Netherlands. So she ends up in the schoolroom of Margaret of Austria. So Margaret's nephew, Charles, is the regent of the Netherlands. However, Margaret is ruling it on his behalf because he's so young. So she meets Anne and she makes such a good impression on her that she's like, great, super, she's coming with me. Margaret likes her so much, she refers to her as la petite boulon. So Anne is a maid of honour to the regent Margaret of Austria in Habsburg court. And then Thomas Boleyn, Anne's father, he basically arranges for Anne to become this, to become a maid of honour for, for Mary, Mary Tudor, King Henry VIII's sister, when she marries King Louis XII. So she ends up serving Mary until King Louis dies. And then she enters the household of Queen Claude. 
Claude of France is the daughter of Louis XII and she marries Francis I and he becomes King of France. So while she's in the French court, King Francis's sister, Marguerite de Navarre, is this intelligent woman. And so the court is filled with humanists and reformers and and open thinking and it is and it was basically a hub for the intellectuals of of the day and Anne was surrounded by that so on top of this she served queen claude so queen claude was incredibly pious and marguerite was pious in her own way as well but it came from the concept of your faith is your own and the faith is personal and not and that you, you don't have to rely on the church in order to have faith so while she's in France, Anne Boleyn is really into French culture, dance, etiquette, music, poetry, literature. Uh, she she you know she speaks French. She has she has these interests in fashion and art and religious philosophy and illuminated manuscripts. And she also learns about the game of courtly love. In courtly love, it's basically being flirtatious. It's like being on the precipice of flirting. You are alluring and just flirting enough without damaging one's reputation or character. And it was just the way everybody was. Margaret de Navarre, she fills the French court with the great thinkers, the intellectuals of the day. It is a bustling centre of ideas and thoughts and new ways of being and Anne is surrounded by this. She's also serving two incredibly pious women. She's serving Marguerite and she's serving Queen Claude. Both of these are incredibly religious women in their own ways. Granted, Claude was very much Catholic. Marguerite was more favourable to the evangelical way because she even wrote reformist papers. So this is a hotbed of intellectual discussion and debate. So like afterwards, you know, the concept of Anne being this whore, effectively, is perpetuated in part because of King Francis I. Because King Francis I, now that, that is somebody who shagged a lot. He was boinking everything he could. Frankly, that man could not keep his dick in his pantalon, which is, he's very much a contrast to Queen Claude, who was just so straightforward in her religious views. So Anne stays in the French court for about seven years and then she gets summoned back to England because Cardinal Wolsey, he's arranging this marriage between Anne Boleyn and James Butler because there is this land dispute over in Ireland and this title of Earl and if Anne were to marry James, it basically settles this entire dispute. But for whatever reason, falls through, but everybody's totally cool with it. Anyway, and that was 1521. And in 1522, there's this pageant, an English court pageant on Shrove Tuesday, and she plays the part of Perseverance. Now, the legend goes that that's where the first, um, that's the first time that Henry VIII noticed her, but there's no, like, actual evidence that he really paid attention to her there. Here's the thing, Anne is noticed, because she you know, she's such a great dancer, she's so witty, she's so charming, she is effervescent. So when Anne does make her debut in the British court, apart from the fact that she is so different to what the typical English rule should be, her hair is chestnut. 
not black, like is often described. She has chestnut hair, dark eyes, sallow skin. She has some moles, which is where they were like, she's a monster. That's where that came from. But she is funny. Like, she's funny as fuck. Like, and she had a really dry sense of humour as well. And I also think as well she used humour as a a trauma response. But when she's introduced to the the English court, she is more French than the French. Because she spent her formative years there. So you have this open-minded, reformist, evangelical Anne Boleyn. Plays the game, who's wise, who's fiery and witty. Like, that's what everyone likes about her. It's the fact that she's funny. When you think of the courtiers, if they're in your company for a long time, there's only so much a pretty face is going to do before they're like, okay, well, eh. You know what I mean? And in 1522, she also becomes, what, a lady-in-waiting for Catherine of Aragon. And so Henry Percy and Thomas Wyatt are people in court, and she does the courtly game of love, and they flirt, and people act like something more happened, but it didn't. It was just playing the game at court. In 1524, Henry VIII just straight up stops sleeping with Catherine of Aragon. Like, they're, he's like, mm-mm. In 1526, and sometime between 1524 and 1526, Henry VIII is shagging Mary Bolin, or Mary Carey as she is at that point, and sister. And like, the rumour goes that she gave birth to two of his children, but it's unlikely because he would have bestowed you know, more stuff in them if they were his, because, like, one of them's a boy. He did like his boys. So at some point in 1526, Henry is, like, no longer interested in Mary, and he's got his eyes set on Anne. So the courtly game of love, you would exchange letters and gifts and everything else. And at some point, as Catherine's lady-in-waiting, she catches the eye of Henry, which wouldn't be difficult, because Henry is used to these strong intelligent women but when it came to Catherine apart from the fact that you know the whole son issue Anne becomes incredibly appealing because because of her lively qualities so at one point these advances and this attention from the king are just a bit much and she's like fuck this we're a game of soldiers and she just leaves court she's like okay you know what no Like, she already knew that he was sleeping with her sister. Like, how could she not? And she was like, um, yeah, I don't want to do that. She had her own conscience to contend with. Even her own father, let's get you out of there, because he wanted his daughter to maintain her reputation. He didn't want her to become, you know, the king's fling. He's like, oh, you need to get away from that guy who's 11 years older than you and is making advances. Yeah, yeah, even if it is the king, let's get you out of there. And eventually after many letters and gifts like he hunts a stag and then sends her the stag so that she may feast upon it so that when she eats it she thinks of him he sends her jewelry and all this kind of other stuff and initially he's like i want you to be my maîtresse en traite which is a french term for the official mistress of the king and you get like power and acumen and all this kind of stuff but anne is deeply religious she doesn't want to do anything that goes against her own beliefs. And Henry's like, come on, that's the fucking tease right there, bud. You can be my one true mistress. It's going to be perfect. And he was already trying to, like, annul Catherine at this point anyway, because he wanted an heir. He was like, it couldn't be my fault 
Like, could you imagine someone going back in time and being to Henry? Like, yeah, the reason you keep having girls is is generally your fault. But anyway, so one thing that we don't really talk about is Henry. He was raised on this concept of this Arthurian legend of chivalry and love and romance. He's really, really into this shit. He is Arthur. She is Guinevere. You know, and so Anne Boleyn wasn't necessarily beautiful for the time. She was not the stunning, gorgeous woman. This this sexy strumpet that everyone always portrays her to be. She is smart and she is funny and she is witty and she is dry. And these are all things that make her very interesting. So Henry is chasing Anne. He's still married to Catherine. So after after he offers her the um the maîtresse entrite, one true mistress, that whole thing, after he offers that, he brings forth the concept of annulling his marriage to Catherine. And initially, Anne's sense of duty is very much... And she gets really angry and upset about the concept of ousting her queen. Like, it's a big deal. This whole time, Henry's writing letters. He is sending her gifts. Jewels, books, furniture, the whole thing. So at some point over the next year between letters and everything else that he's doing, he effectively proposes marriage to her and she accepts. Whatever her motivations were, we don't know, but that's how it was. Henry, the absolute fuckboy, was already planning to chuck Catherine. We know this. This was kind of his deal. And Henry's attraction to Anne, I mean, yes, let's face it, sexual attraction is in there somewhere, but they had compatible interests. There was intellectual stimulation, a shared political purpose. She believed in reformation because she felt the Catholic Church was taking and taking and was self-serving instead of serving the people. And Henry wanted a reformation because the church was going against what he felt was God's divine right, which was his right because he had to be the big boss of everything. So Anne loved liberal discussion and debate. She had this library that was full of Bibles and evangelical tracts and all this stuff that was translated into French by members of Marguerite Navarre's reformist circle. Catherine was obedient. She was, she had queenly obedience. Anne was lively. She wanted discussion, a much more fun and funny companion. And because she was so different to the the ladies of the English court, she would be somewhat exotic for Henry. So Henry had no sons with Catherine. They had Mary, but he was like, fuck this, that's not enough. In last week's episode, you mentioned how Pope Julius II granted a dispensation for for Henry to marry Catherine because she was his brother's widow and there's a whole thing in the Bible, blah, 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 blah. You know, he tries to get her to leave the marriage. She's like, no. And he's like, well, fuck you then. Because people think he wanted a divorce. He wanted to an annulment. He wants to make sure that this just shuts down. So in 1527, he starts the initial movement to get this annulment carried off. So, yeah, 1527, William Knight, he sent Pope Clement VII to try and get this annulment going. Because he's a new Pope, they're like, okay, let's see what's going on. Unfortunately, Catherine's nephew, Charles V, is the Holy Roman Emperor, and he's currently holding Clement hostage. So, that's not going to work out. And so the start of the great matter happens. So, like... And like we said before, marriages of royalty had been dissolved before, but Catherine being Catherine and believing that she had, and believed that it was God's will 
for her to be Queen of England. She was not going anywhere. And also she didn't want her daughter to be a bastard because that puts her life in danger. Anne and Henry, they're continuing this affair, this emotional affair, shall we say. So this is all going on in the background. And in 1528, the sweating sickness, the very thing that killed Prince Arthur, it is back. And in London, the mortality rate is skyrocketing. Henry straight up fucks off. He's constantly moving around, changes his residence because he doesn't want to get sick. But Anne Boleyn, she manages to get the sweating sickness. So she is back in Edhever Castle. She's back with the rest of the Boleyns. Her brother-in-law, William Carey, he gets the fucking sweating sickness and he dies. And when this happens, Henry, being less of a shitbag than he usually is, sends his personal physician to Anne to look after her. Anyway, so she recovers and in 1529, Anne starts spending more time around the king. She would play along to the fun of court that Henry liked to, to engage in. So by 1529, Wolseley gets arrested. So Anne and Wolsey, they don't get on. And basically, the concept comes around that Wolsey is loyal to the Pope, not to England, and as such, it's king. Apparently, what happens is Henry and Anne are having a conversation, which leads to her saying that Wolsey is, you know, a selfish prick and full of dishonour. And Henry's like, okay, cool, he's off then. In all likelihood, he would have been executed, but then he died from illness in 1530. So Henry and Catherine are kind of estranged at this point, but she's still making his shirts. In 1531, Catherine is banished from court. Yeah, says he's going to go hunting one day, just doesn't come back. Moves his entire court and tells Catherine to fuck off. And Mary. The public has such great support for Catherine. And's having dinner at this manor house in the River Thames and a bunch of angry women are so mad. They feel like Catherine has been pushed aside and it's all this venomous vixen's fault. So they, they attempt to fucking get her and grab her and she has to flee. Like, she escapes by boat. <laughs> um, so during this time, Anne is getting power. She's able to grant petitions. She gives patronage. She receives diplomats. She ensures that there's a decent allegiance with France. She's really, I mean, she gets on super well with the French ambassador. You know, so she basically becomes Henry's most trusted advisor. And through all this time, they're not sleeping together. If you take into consideration Henry's perception, Henry believes that, again, the divine right of kings, he is supposed to be king by the law of God, by the rule of the Lord. And his queen is supposed to be chaste. So during this time, neither one of them is having sex with anybody because they have to be there for each other when the time comes. He has to be chivalrous for his lady. In, in 1532, Thomas Cromwell hits the scene. Cromwell and Anne, they're, they're kind of on the same team to begin with and then everything just goes sour. Cromwell, he brings, all for, he brings forward the supplication against the ordinaries and the submission of the clergy acts. These recognise royal supremacy over the church. And he's sort of like this, this very instrumental figure in fucking everything over. And he's that friend who organises the breakup. Like he takes control of the breakup. He's like, Mm-mm, okay, done. No more contact with you, mate. 
So as far as he's concerned, this means that Henry and Church of England, bye-bye Catholicism, bye-bye Church of England is there, and Henry's the head of it because royal supremacy. 1532, Henry grants Anne the Marquisette of Pembroke, which is basically basically upgrading her, her peerage and her titles, which is more appropriate for, like, a future queen. He's upgrading her, right? Henry decides he's going to take Anne to go see Francis I. He's going to do a whole thing because he really wants French support for this marriage, for this union, considering he's just fucked off Spain. So they hold this thing in Calais. So it's, like, November in Calais and... And the king's sister, Marguerite, is invited, but she doesn't show up because as far as she's concerned, Anne is still the mistress of Henry. So she's not going to show up to it because she's like, this is adultery. This isn't cool. I'm not here for this. So the French government, they give this implicit support. So basically, it's kind of like a political triumph for Henry, right? He's got France on his side and him and Francis, they've got this weird rivalry going on, but it's totally fine. It's like the French king and the French king, he's also Catholic. So he's still kind of like, I'm friends of the Pope. Even though the French government's like, yeah, it's totally cool. We're married. We're, we're totally cool with that stuff. So during this conference, Francis and Anne end up like, are shooting the shit, having a chat and stuff. Nobody knows what they were chatting about, but they did. This seems to be going well. So Henry and Anne, they bugger off back to England. So when they're in Dover, Henry and Anne have this. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode. Where I'd like to tell you a story. Hello everyone, it's here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. Secret marriage ceremony on the 14th of November. It may not have been official in any capacity, but seeing as Henry was now the head of the church, and the fact that he, he had openly brought Anne forth as his betrothed, and that is when they start sleeping together. So whether or not the marriage was a thing, we do know that that's the first time they had sex. And she becomes pregnant, like, pretty soon after this. And on the 25th of January, 1533, Anne and Henry have a private wedding ceremony. So by mid-May, the official thing comes out about Henry and Catherine, that their marriage is null and void. And then 
Five days later, it's declared that the marriage of Henry and Anne is fucking valid. So then four days after that, on the 1st of June, Anne gets crowned Queen Consort in this giant ceremony, in this huge, fantastic, magnificent ceremony at Westminster Abbey to prove to Anne how important she was and to prove to the world how important she was, or at least England. He had Anne crowned with St Edward's crown and this was generally only used to crown like monarchs and it was to show that this was legit because Anne was like very obviously pregnant at this point and everyone thought it was going to be a boy. This was done to sort of solidify that this was you know the right way to go, the righteous path. Like even before her coronation and after, Anne spends a lot of time protecting and promoting evangelicals to ensure that they're safe. On the 7th of September 1533, Anne gives birth to Elizabeth, who, as you know, ends up being queen. We don't know whether Elizabeth was named after Anne's mother or Henry's mother, because they were both Elizabeth. Maybe they were like, both is fine, both is good. Everyone was so convinced that they were going to have a boy that they had to quickly add an S onto the end of, like, all the stuff that had been ready to to go. Because they were like, princes, and they're like, princess. And there was supposed to be, like, this jousting tournament which happens when there's a birth of an heir. Like, it gets cancelled. Everything is shut down. They're like, oh, yay. They're both disappointed because they were hoping for a boy. Initially, um, Anne wanted to breastfeed Elizabeth. But Henry was like, what the fuck? No. They didn't want anything to be a barrier of them being able to, like, get her pregnant again. And queens were not supposed to nurse their own children. The wet nurses existed for that. And when she had Elizabeth, Elizabeth ends up in her own estate and everything, Anne has her moved closer because she wants to be closer to her daughter. That's what she wants. During this time, Henry is so fucking vile to his daughter Mary. Anne's issue with Mary is more like she's worried about Elizabeth. And then Henry, lest we forget, trusted Catherine to be a regent to rule when he was out gallivanting in France. Like, he had no problem before marriage having Anne be his advisor when it came. And Anne was involved and she was his partner in crime. And, and as this went on, as Henry got older, he was um less open to the, um, shall we say, political participation of his wives. He didn't want that. But at the time when they were together initially, before they started having sex, before they became husband and wife, they were very much a partnership, which is a rarity, to be honest. In 1534, she has a miscarriage or a stillbirth. We're not entirely sure of. Henry is doing what he does. So Henry basically takes mistresses when Anne is pregnant. So he was doing that. And in general, she was fine with it. So Henry's chatting to like his most trusted advisors and he's like, I wonder if there's a way to get out of this marriage without having to return to like my ex-wife. Nothing really comes of it and they end up being fine again and she's pregnant again by October. On the 8th of January 1536, Catherine of Aragon's death reaches the king and queen and Henry decides to walk around head to toe bright yellow. Now, it could be that this was an attempt to show mourning to Spain because yellow is a mourning colour in, in Spain, or at least it was at the time. Or it could have been a ding-dong the witch is dead kind of scenario. We're not entirely sure. All we know is that is that Anne didn't do that. This rumour goes around that Anne is responsible for poisoning Catherine and Anne tries to reconcile with Mary, Mary Tudor. You know, she's trying to make peace, she's trying to bridge a gap a little bit and trying to be less of a prick. But Mary's like, fuck you, no, you're the bitch who 
made me a bastard, so no thank you very much. So Anne is already stressed to the max, and because she's pregnant again, she's worried that if she doesn't have give birth to a boy, because Catherine's dead, so there's nothing to stop Henry doing what he wants at this point. So while Anne is pregnant, and Anne was never really that focused on any of the mistresses he had before this, but when he starts seeing the Catholic Jane Seymour, that's when the shit hits the fan. So he gives Jane this locket with like this miniature like portrait of himself inside, and Jane keeps opening and closing this portrait in front of Anne. And Anne gets so fucking mad, because one, this Catholic bitch is fucking things up in front of her, and two, she's very aware of how she got her start. So she rips the locket with such force, she grabs it, that she actually makes her fingers bleed. And so like um, later on in that month, there's a, a jousting tournament. Henry is knocked off the horse and is unconscious for like two hours. And Anne freaks out because of the stress of the situation they believe caused her to miscarry. So Henry gets in this jousting accident and some people think this is where like the, the severe tyranny and mood swings and shit started. But he was always kind of a dick. So as Anne is recovering from her miscarriage, Henry tells people that he is, he was seduced into this marriage by deception. And Jane Seymour is moved into, has been moved into the royal quarters, much like Anne did when, uh, when he was getting rid of Catherine. Anne was always one to speak her mind. She actually says that Henry is not a skilled lover. For all of their wooing and the courtly game of love when it came to actual, like, fun time, downtown party time, he was kind of lacklustre for her. He wasn't very skilled. Henry is starting to have, um, impotence issues. I'm telling you, I'm convinced Henry was a wham-bam, thank you, man. He was like, dunk, 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 dun, thank you. Henry's a megalomaniac. He has to be the big I am. And as he's getting older, he's losing his youth and he's losing his power and he's losing his strength. He needs everyone to agree with him. He needs everyone to see him as the fucking man. Here's the thing, even if she didn't say it, the fact that he has he's having issues physically, that's gonna make him feel less of a man. That's already gonna like be preying on his mind and making him feel that he has to overcompensate. Clearly he's not an unskilled lover. Clearly she is doing something she shouldn't do. So Cromwell fucking hates Anne. The reason that Anne had such an issue with Cromwell was when Henry was sacking the monasteries. She was mad that the money was being fed into personal pockets instead of towards the people of the country. And and Anne had gotten to a point where, perhaps, Anne had gotten to a point where she felt her opinion was, especially as queen, would certainly be above someone like Cromwell. And, and he basically convinces Henry that Anne Boleyn is an adulterer and a, a bitch and a bunch of other shit. During this time, Henry is acting like super cool with Anne. As far as she knows, they're, they're going to be heading to France in a couple days. So Henry, he's flitting between you must bow down and state that she is the true queen to thinking of ways to get rid of her. Like he's jumping between the two. But it's something he's always done. When he first came into power, the first thing he did was get rid of a bunch of his father's advisors. Straight up, off they went. When it came to Catherine, like he just up and left one day. I'm going on a hunting trip, bye-bye. And with Anne, he told her that they were going to be going to Calais. They were supposed to be going to France again, like a couple days later. Okay, so, so basically Cromwell gets a couple of people arrested and a couple of guys. They end up being tortured until they confess to an affair with the Queen. And you're probably thinking, why adultery? 
British law at the time stated that a queen could only be tried for treason if she had committed adultery, because basically it changed the line of succession. Hence why Cromwell's like, okay, this is perfect. I have to get her charged for adultery. And because Anne is close with her family, he's like, yeah, brother did it too. So it's the May Day celebration and blah, blah, blah. And Anne is sitting next to the king. Person comes up, whispers in his ear. The king gets up, he leaves. And Anne never sees him again after that. On the 2nd of May, 1536, Anne is arrested and she gets taken to the Tower of London. While she's being held in the Tower of London, she's cracking jokes because, again, drama response. And the ladies-in-waiting that she's gotten there are effectively spies for Cromwell. I don't know why I'm here. And the word gets back that it's because, you know, adultery. And she's like, wait, what? And she starts naming the people that she's spoken to that day. So she mentions Norris. Norris was was supposed to be courting one of her ladies-in-waiting. He was being a bit of a dick about it and being a bit flirty with Anne. And she was like, hey, mate, nah. She names them and she's like, well, these are the people I spoke to that day. You know, they'll be able to justify and state that. Nothing on to what was happening. A bunch of people are arrested, accused of having like an affair with Anne, including her own brother, George. So anyway, she ends up writing a letter to Henry being like, mate, I didn't do anything. And also, please pardon these men because they didn't do anything either because all of us are innocent. P.S. I love you kind of thing. I trust in your good nature and I trust in your like sense of self and blah, 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 blah. And you're such a good guy. I bet you're awesome. So I think one of the reasons that Henry was so willing to accept this information regarding Anne is because one, he wanted rid of her. Two, he felt like the subservient Jane Seymour was exactly what he needed in the Queen. He wanted someone to dominate instead of being an equal. He needed everybody to bend to his will. And when they do not fold like paper, he he tears them apart or he burns them. When she's in the Tower of London, she has such a dry sense of humour and she sort of flits between the concept of hope and despair. Like she goes through these moments where she thinks, no, he's going to turn around and he's going to realise that this isn't right and he's going to come and help me. And then she's like, oh wait, no, I'm, this is it. I'm screwed. Like she doesn't know if she's going to end up in exile or be executed. And it's very much this grey area for her and she's worried. Ends up in this bullshit trial and everyone says like, fuck it, you're guilty. Whatever. Incest, adultery, the whole fucking lot. All of it. So normally, it's just like some dude with an axe who does the executions. But an expert swordsman from France is coming for Anne. Why a swordsman instead of the general executioner? On one hand, it could be, I want somebody who knows what they're doing and I'm going to make this nice and quick. Or it's throwing in her face because of how French she was and how much she loved France that she was going to die French. And then all these delays keep happening with the swordsman, so... Like, she thinks she's going to be there, and then she's not, and then she thinks she's going to be the day of execution, then it's not again. Like, was this a way of freaking her out, or was this just fucking a crazy random happenstance? And she just gets to the point where she just wants her suffering to be over, and, and, and it's perceived then as her being, like, really happy to die, and that's not the case. So, on the 17th of May, the marriage of Henry and Anne is declared null and void. Boom, gone. And on the 19th of May, Anne is getting ready for her execution. She takes her holy sacraments. The only thing that she says when she's doing her holy sacrament is she does wish that she was better to Lady Mary. And that was the only thing that she felt regret for, which is understandable. She is very aware that the same fate or worse could happen to Elizabeth. She saw Henry's cruelty firsthand towards his daughter. He saw how dismissive he was, how cruel he was. And she didn't want that for Elizabeth. And the thing is, maybe Anne did feel the, you know, a change in the air. Because she put Elizabeth in the care of her friend Parker. 
a reformist like herself, and she understands too well Henry's volatile behaviour. And she does everything she can to appease him. She writes to him, but during the time where she's being tried, Henry's out partying and gallivanting. So, like, the execution date changes. Like, there's a pretty good crowd there, which Cromwell didn't want. He didn't want people to know the date. And then, with the um, Sormon being delayed, people just were there. So she knows she's on the chopping block and she knows her brother has already been killed and him's to say he doesn't go after her sister or her niece and nephew or her daughter. She has people to protect, she has people to save and in this speech she basically says that she never committed adultery, she never did such a thing and, you know, she had nothing to do with these men and she prayed for their souls and she prayed for her own soul and she prayed for the king's soul and she did not want the people to judge him too harshly and to forgive the king for this mistake. And because of the speech, right, the ladies-in-waiting is even the, the ones who were there by Cromwell's doing, this solidifies in their mind that she didn't fucking do it. Between this and the sacrament, they're like, what the fuck? And they just start sobbing and crying. It's just a big old mess. Because she's so serene and she's so strong in her convictions, they're like, oh shit. So her death doesn't come with the cheer that one would expect of somebody who committed treason, somebody who was hated by the people, you know, that sort of way. She's blindfolded, she gets on her knees and she starts to pray and she's sort of nervous because she knows what's coming and she's sort of moving around as if she's... But what the swordsman does is he basically shouts, um, boy, give me my sword, so that she turns her head and then he decapitates her in one swoop, nice and clean. And that's the end of Anne Boleyn. At least her life, anyway. And Henry tried to erase every single part of it. While she, well, well, she awaited her death sentence, he was in Chelsea, living it up with Jane Seymour. And they were planning their wedding. So he's trying to eradicate Anne. So he's got carpenters, stonemasons, seamstresses, and seamstresses. And they're at Hampton Court. And they are removing all signs of Anne's existence, her queenship there. So they're removing her initials, her emblems, her mottos. There are so many carved H's and A's all over the place. There, there are so many, they actually didn't get all of them. So inscriptions to Queen Anne get changed to Queen Jane. Some of them are easy. Like Anne had a leopard emblem and Jane was a panther. So that was pretty easy to just change over. Because he had like, he had made everything about her because he had done everything to promote the concept that this was a true and valid marriage as opposed to his marriage to Catherine. So he tried to get rid of everything. He tried to purge her from his life completely. Like destroying portraits, burning letters, although 17 of this he managed to not get. Like he tried to get her erased from the memory of <laughs> the kingdom and his life. He wanted to start afresh. He wanted to be like, nope, nope, this is the one. But here's the thing. Anne lived on. Not just through her daughter Elizabeth, who becomes queen of the golden age. She lives on through... And because he tried so hard to erase her, she became all the more interesting to people. She was a matter of discussion and debate, skills of thought. By trying to destroy Anne Boleyn and erase her story and who she was, he turned her into a legend. And Anne enters the mythos, a point of intrigue and fascination and fucking deserved better. So ends the story of Anne Boleyn. And so what did we learn today? Henry VIII was an absolute fuckboy. Oh my god. And then we should always double check our shit because also um, 
Don't fucking trust anything Philippa Gregory says. Philippa Gregory knows just enough about history to fuck it up. So, if you liked today's episode, feel free to go into Apple Podcasts and rate and review five stars. You don't have to say anything about the podcast. You, you can say anything. You can be like, hey, cheese is delicious. I'm like, yes, it is. It absolutely is. So, um, yeah. <laughs> If you want to follow me on anything, I am on TikTok, who did what now pod, Twitter, who did what now PD. I've got a Patreon if you want to support me that way. It's patreon.com slash who did what now. And I'm on Instagram, who did what now pod, where I do like bite sized facts. So if you want to follow me on any of those, come on, join the, join the fun time. So I'll be back in a couple days. Jesus Christ. Happy Women's History Month. Oh my God. We're gonna, we're gonna be back in a couple days to discuss that wily fucking bitch Jane Seymour. I'm sorry. I have, I have. So, I shall bid you farewell. Adios. Au revoir. Avoid a Zen, my friends. Goodbye.